good to see everybody here this morning. Of course, those of you in the room, those of you who are joining us online. And uh, man, that is just so awesome. So exciting to see when people go forward in faith, in baptism. And I just want to say to you that if you're someone who is newer to grace or you're newer to the church or you're newer to baptism, uh, like Grace mentioned beforehand, baptism is not what saves you. It's not what makes you a person who is saved by God, but it is an act of obedience. It's the first step of obedience. It's an outward declaration of a decision that you have made to go public with your faith in Christ. And I just wanna encourage you, if you've been watching that, if that stirs something in your heart, if you're a person who that's your next step, is that you need to go public in, in baptism. If you've never done that, uh, we would so love to help you do that. And so you can find anyone on our team or you can uh, obviously check out our website or go to the Welcome Center, and we would love to help you take that next step of baptism if that is for you. Uh, something else before we get into, I want to mention, uh, this last Friday, something kind of cool happened at our church. How many of you were able to be here for the church picnic on Friday? Yeah, that was a good time, huh? That was fun. So if you, if you missed that, I just want you to imagine this. Imagine a thousand of your closest friends uh, coming together. Imagine food, imagine games, and just an awesome, awesome picnic. I gotta tell you this, my favorite part of the church picnic, um, aside from the, the people, of course, uh, was, uh, imagine this, an endless supply of Swenson's hamburgers. And it was a holy moment. I, I, had a, I, had, I was like, this is heaven on earth right now. So it was awesome. And uh, if you guys missed that, we had a great time. And hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again in the future because we had such a good time doing that together. Um, but I do want to say that if you are a first-time guest with us here at the Medina campus, or maybe it's your first time back or you're joining us for the first time on live stream, we want to extend a very special welcome to you. Thanks for being our guest. But I want to let you know that right now you are catching us in the midst of a series that we are in that's called Jesus Over My Pain. And to kind of help orient you to the conversation, um, this series that we're in right now is actually part of a bigger series uh, that we've been in for a little bit of time right now that's called Jesus Over All. And so we've, we've been spending the last several weeks, and really what we're doing is we're, we're, we're simply asking this question. The question we're asking is, what does it look like to live a life where Jesus is over all? Uh, and we are together pursuing a practical vision, practically speaking, what does it look like to live a life where Jesus is first in every part and every aspect and every compartment of my life? And how do we pursue that together? So that's what we've been talking about. And of course, the series that we're in right now is Jesus Over My Pain. And so what we're talking about specifically is we're talking about the things in our life that cause us hurt, the things that cause us pain, the things that lead to suffering in our life. And we're starting to think about what does it look like to invite Jesus even into those places of my life and my heart? And what does it look like for Jesus to be over those places of pain that are in my life? Now, I wanna let you know, we started this conversation last week with Jesus over my pain. And if you missed that last week's talk, I really would encourage you, if you get a chance, to go to our website or our app or our podcast and maybe listen to that. I think last week's message really laid a very important groundwork, even in what we're talking about today. But today what I want to do is I actually want to zoom in a little bit, and I want to talk about a very specific variety of pain. Or uh, maybe you could think about it this way. I want to talk about a very specific species of pain. And what I want to invite you and me together to think about is I want to think about Jesus over my regrets, Jesus over our regrets. And so what I want to invite you to think about with me, and I know this can be a sensitive topic, but I wanna invite us to think about the pain that comes from our past failures. I wanna think about the, the, the pain and the hurt that comes from maybe events or decisions that 
that, that we look back in our life and look back at our story and we wish we could change or we wish we could remove. I wanna talk to us about this, the stuff that causes shame, the stuff that causes guilt or remorse or embarrassment in our lives when we look back at our story. And like I said, I know that this can be a bit of a sensitive topic, uh, but my hope is that as we begin to think about this, that we start to think, what does it look like to invite Jesus into those spaces of my regret and my remorse? And what does it look like to live a life where Jesus is over those spaces, where he's first in those places? And so to do this, I actually wanna invite you to open your Bible with me. And we're gonna go together to an incredible passage of the Bible. We're gonna go to John chapter 21. Now, I'm gonna tell you, we are gonna spend pretty much our entire time camped out in this one passage. So I actually think it'd be really awesome if you had uh, this passage in front of you. And if you're a note taker, I think that'd be, this would be a great, uh, a great place to uh, maybe take notes or jo- uh, write stuff in your Bible as we're gonna be digging into this passage. Um, but John 21, and it's also uh, found on page 881 in the Bibles that are under the chairs. So if you didn't bring a Bible with you uh, here this morning, you could just use one of ours. And then, of course, we, we say this all the time, but we mean it. If you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we would really like for you to have one. So you can just take one of those and make that a gift. So John 21. Now, as you're finding John 21, let me just see if I can give us a, a little bit of uh, maybe uh, the reason why uh, I think this passage is so pertinent to this conversation about Jesus over my regret. So John 21 is actually the last chapter in the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John is an account of the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And when you get to the end of John, the final chapter is what we're about to read, John chapter 21. And what we're gonna see in this passage is we're actually gonna see an interaction that Jesus has in light of maybe one of the most notorious regrets and one of the most notorious uh, failures that's recorded in the Bible. And the reason that I wanna look at this is because I think that this passage doesn't simply, it doesn't simply inform us of what Jesus did and how Jesus responded in light of one of the biggest failures and regrets in all the Bible. But the reason I think this is important is because this passage is also going to instruct us. I believe it's going to instruct us not just in what Jesus did, but what Jesus still does and what Jesus is capable of doing with our pain, which comes from regret and comes from failure. So let's jump in. And uh, let's start off in verse one. So John 21, verse one says this. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. All right, so let me just hit pause there. You can tell from the way that this chapter opens that John is about to tell us an account of something that took place. But before we look at that account, I wanna give you a little bit of context because notice how it starts. It starts off by saying, afterward which of course I think is gonna cause any sincere Bible reader to ask the question, after what? So after word, after what? And if you read the context, you're actually gonna see that in John chapter 19 and 20, what it refers to is it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is after what? It's after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's gonna say afterwards, Jesus appeared, and I want you to notice this too, this little detail. Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Now, I actually find this really intriguing. And uh, the reason is is this. This is is apparently a additional appearance of the resurrected Jesus to his disciples. Now, the reason I find this so interesting is if if you ever read the Gospel of John, which if you haven't, I highly recommend you read the whole, the Gospel of John is amazing. But when you read the Gospel of John, when you get to chapter 20, what you're gonna see is that Jesus has raised from the dead. So he is resurrected from the dead. He appears to uh, Mary. 
He appears to his disciples in resurrected form. And then the Bible tells us that he has this special appearance to a guy named Thomas, one of his disciples. And then after that, when you get to the end of John chapter 20, it almost gives you the impression that the gospel is over. In fact, John chapter 20 ends with this almost like this climactic, amazing sort of final statement. In fact, let me just show it to you. Look, look back at John chapter 20 and look at the last sentences that you see in John chapter 20. Here's how it ends. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You, know, you read this, this seems like a grand concluding statement. This would be an awesome place to end the book. In fact, when you read it, you almost expect that after this, the credits are gonna roll and the story's over. But then you flip the page and John 21 says, afterward, Jesus appeared again. I don't know if this is helpful to you, but when I was reading through the gospel of John, this is the way I thought of it. Um, I know for my family, whenever we go to the movies, uh, to the movie theater, which is not all that often because we have four kids. And so for six of us to get in the theater, I practically have to sell a kidney uh, to do it. But, um, <laughs> but when we do go to the movie theater, my family kind of has this unspoken rule. I don't know if you guys have this too. But our unspoken rule is we don't leave the theater until the credits are completely finished and the lights come back on. Right? We just don't do it. And why is that? Well, it's because some of you know, oftentimes there's a bonus scene. Right? The credits roll and it's over and then, oh, here's a bonus scene. And the bonus scene might give you a couple extra giggles. The bonus scene might close a loose end of something that wasn't fully finished in the movie. The bonus scene's important. You know, the bonus scene is when Kip marries LaFonda. Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. And so the bonus, scene, the bonus scene is very important. So when you read the Gospel of John, it gets to the end of chapter 20. Jesus is raised. He's appeared to his disciples. He appears to everyone. It makes this incredible statement, but then all of a sudden you turn the page and it says, afterward, he appeared again. So the question is, why the bonus scene? Why, the, why is there an additional revelation? And can I tell you guys what I think it is? I think the reason that we have John chapter 21 is because Jesus has some unfinished business that he has to attend to with a specific disciple. What is so important that it deserves a postscript? I think it's what we're gonna read right here. Jesus has unfinished business with a specific disciple. And who's that disciple? Well, look at verse two. It says him by name, Simon Peter. Ah, Simon Peter. I think what you're gonna see is that this chapter is all about Simon Peter. Now there's other disciples with him. We're told that Thomas was there. We're told that Nathaniel was there. We're told that the sons of Zebedee were there. That's James and John. Uh, we're told that there was two other disciples. I just like that they're just like, and there was two other guys there too. Um, but we know there's other disciples, but it becomes very evident when you read this passage, this is for Simon Peter. This passage is about Peter. Now what is the unfinished work that Jesus has with Peter? Well, well here, here's what it is. The last time that Peter and Jesus had an interaction in the gospel of John before Jesus went to the cross was in John chapter 18. That was their last interaction before he went to the cross. And what happened in John chapter 18? Well, some of you might know it. John 18 records for us the most notorious failure of Peter. It's Peter's biggest regret. Peter's biggest regret is recorded for us in John chapter 18. Some of you know the story. Basically, here's the story. Jesus comes to his disciples and he predicts that he's gonna be crucified. And he tells his disciples, listen, this is, this is what's gonna go down. And when it goes down, you're all gonna leave me. All of you are going to abandon me. And Peter, who's the most vocal one, adamantly says to the Lord, I will never 
betray you. I will never leave you. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, very truly, I tell you before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me three times. And Peter says, it'll never happen. Everyone else will leave you, but I'll die for you, Jesus. He swears to Jesus, I am not going to do this. Well, of course, a couple chapters later, it happens just like Jesus said. In fact, I actually wanna read it to you. John chapter 18, we see the failure of Peter. And actually, I wanna tell you something. I actually wanna read it to you in the English Standard Version, the English Standard Version of the Bible. Now, why, why the English Standard Version? Okay, well, let me just say, um, some of you uh, probably know this already. There are multiple translations of the Bible that we have in the English language. Uh, one of them is the New International Version. That's the version that's under the chairs that we read together, that we typically read from. Another one is the English Standard Version. Some of you are like, why are there so many translations of the Bible? But the reason there's so many English translations is because all these translations are trying to do is take from the original Greek language and interpret it into the English language. And as many of you know, and you can probably appreciate, especially if you're bilingual, some of you can appreciate this, anytime you try to transfer something from one language to the next, you always run the risk of losing something in translation. Right? Sometimes that is the case. So the reason I wanna read it in the English Standard Version is because the English Standard Version captures a little detail that I believe that the other translations sometimes miss. It gets lost in translation. But it is a very significant detail that was intended in the original writings of scripture. So I'll point it out to you. All right, so here's what it says. Simon Peter followed Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So uh, Jesus was arrested. He was, uh, he was gonna go on trial and he went into the courtyard of the high priest. The Bible says Peter follows him. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? So she's like, you look familiar. You're one of Jesus' disciples, aren't you? And Peter says, I am not. He denies it one time. I don't know Jesus. Now the servants and the officers had made a, now I want you to pay attention to this. They made a charcoal fire. I just want you to take that little detail. I want you to file that in the back of your mind. It's gonna be important later. So we'll come back to that. They made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and they were warming themselves. Peter was also there with the men and he was standing there and he was warming himself. They said to Peter, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and he said, I am not. The second time, I don't know Jesus. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, that happened a little earlier, he asked him, Did I, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, third time. And the Bible says that after that, the rooster crowed, just like Jesus said what happened. I'll tell you something fascinating. All four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are gonna record this scenario. They're gonna tell us what happened, how Peter denied Jesus. And some of the other gospels are actually gonna give us further insight into some of the details that happened that day. And I love what Luke tells us. Luke says, after this happens, after the rooster crows, Jesus turned and he looked straight at Peter. It gets a really amazing little detail. I don't know how it was set up, but apparently when this took place, Jesus was able to lock eyes with Peter. And they had, a, they had an interaction in that moment. And I can't help but wonder what that must have been like. I, I wonder, how did Jesus look at Peter? I, I, can't, I can't imagine what his eyes and what, his, what, what that interaction must have been. And I wonder, how did Peter look at Jesus? And, and there's so much that's left that I'm left questioning. I'm not sure what that was like. But the Bible's gonna say that in that moment when they locked eyes, Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside, and I notice this, the Bible's gonna say, he wept bitterly. He wept bitter. Now, what is happening with Peter? You guys, this is Peter's greatest failure. This is his greatest, the thing that Peter swore to God he would never do. 
he had done. He had done. And now I think what you see is that Peter is full of regret. He's full of sorrowful remorse. He's full of shame. And you guys, this is the last interaction that Peter has with Jesus before Jesus goes to the cross. So can you imagine for the next several days, Peter's probably carrying, carrying around this deep sense of, man, I really blew it. I let Jesus down. I let my community down. I let myself down. And he's walking around with deep regret and he's walking around with deep shame. Now, let me ask you guys this question. How many of you have had that experience before? How many of you have felt that? I know I have, for sure. When I look and I think to myself, man, I really blew it. I let God down and I let people down. I let my community down. I let myself down. I think all of us have had that feeling before where where we, we know the sorrowful remorse that, man, I wish I would have done it different. I can't believe I did that. The thing I thought I'd never do, I did it. And, the, and, the, and the, the, the grief and the, the guilt that comes along with that. I think many of us know it. And, and I think in a room this size, I mean, you can fill in your blank. I, my guess is if you even just pause and think about it for a moment, there's probably moments and decisions that might come to your mind. Maybe for some of you, you think of those things that you said, those words that you spoke, maybe even recently, that you're like, man, I can't believe I said that. I wish I could take that back. I regret that. Maybe for you, you think of that relationship that is broken, that friendship that you betrayed and, and, and you look back and you're just, when you think about it, it even makes you cringe a little bit because you're like, oh, I don't even like to think about it because I, I wish I could take that back. Maybe for some of you, what you think about is maybe you think about that one night, that one night you so desperately wish that you could erase from the history of your life. And when you think about it, you're like, oh, I wish I could just take that. Maybe for you, you think about that one relationship that you entered into, that one relationship that you knew wasn't healthy, that relationship that you knew wasn't good, that it wasn't something that was pleasing to God, and yet you entered into it anyway. Maybe for you, it's the two relationships, the three relationships, the four relationships. Maybe for you, it's that party. And you're like, I wish I could go back. And if I could go back, I would have never even went. But now as a result of that, there's still shame that I carry. Maybe for you, it's that time that you cheated or it's that time that you stole or it's that time that you lied. Maybe it's that time that your pride got the better of you or your anger took over and you look back and you wish so badly that you could reverse the decision that you made. Maybe for, for you, it's the place you visited or it's the things that you saw or it's the websites that you visited. Maybe it's that decision that you made or the abortion that you had or the affair that you were part of or the addiction that you swore would never happen. And I'm like I'm saying, you could fill in your blank in a room this size, certainly all of those things are present. Many of them even present from the guy with the microphone. We've all been there, so what do you do with it? What do you do with that regret, with the pain that comes from decisions that are regretful? Well, let me show you what Peter does, at least at first. Here's Peter's response in the midst of his, his grief. He says, I'm going fishing, that's what Peter said, I know, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, honey, I found my life verse. I'm getting that thing tattooed somewhere. Let's get that thing etched on a plaque. Going fishing. That's what Peter said. Now, I want you to understand, though, that when Peter says this, this is not about recreation. This is about occupation. So you got to remember, before Jesus called Peter to be his disciple, Peter was a career fisherman, just like his father who was before him. So what does it mean when Peter says, I'm going fishing? Here's what it means. I believe that Peter had believed that he had blown it so badly that he thought the only option for him was to go back to his life before Jesus. 
I think a lot of us might think that. And basically he said, I blew it so bad, I missed my calling. And so that means I have to go back to the way that I lived before I met Christ in my life. He goes back to fishing. And look what the Bible says. The Bible actually says this. It says that the rest of the disciples said, we'll go with you. You know, Peter was always a leader. We'll go with you. So they went with him. So they went out and they got into the boat. And the Bible says that night they caught nothing. So apparently these guys were fishing all night long and we're gonna see here in the next verse why, uh, why I, I know they were fishing all night long. They're fishing all night long and the Bible says they didn't catch a thing. They didn't catch a thing. And then watch what happens in verse four. Watch what happens in verse four. Early in the morning, so the whole evening passes by, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now the last time they saw him was in John chapter 20 in Jerusalem. 75 miles Uh, beyond that is where Galilee is. Jesus shows up on the shore, the resurrected Christ. And the Bible's gonna say the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. I actually pondered this a lot this week. And I I kept asking the question, why didn't they recognize him? Why did they already, like John chapter 20, the disciples saw Jesus in this post-resurrected form. And then in John chapter 21, they don't recognize him. And I thought, why is that? That seems kind of weird to me. And can I tell you what I think it is? So I'm speculating here but I think I have a good reason for it and I'm gonna show it to you. Here's what I think is going on. I think that Jesus is deliberately concealing his identity from them. I think he's keeping them from recognizing him. Now, why would he do that? Why would he play coy in that way? I don't think he's trying to mess with them. I think that Jesus is actually preparing to make an incredibly profound point. And so watch what happens next. They don't recognize him. And so Jesus called out to them, friends, friends. And by the way, I just highlighted that. So I thought, how cool is it that Jesus can look at the guys who abandoned him and look at the man who denied him, and he says, friends. Friends, he says to them, haven't you guys any fish? No, they said. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now watch this. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, now by the way, you're like, who's that? This is kind of funny. It's actually John, the guy who's writing this book. That's the way he refers to himself. He's like, I'm the one, I'm the one Jesus loved. Right? So he's, he's like, then the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. Now, I got an interesting question for you. Why in that moment did John recognize that it was Jesus? And why in that moment did John turn to Peter? Peter, it's the Lord. Peter, this is for you. Well, why did he do that? Now, can I tell you why? And I'm, I'm completely convinced of this. Because three years earlier, when Jesus called Peter to follow him, when he was first called to follow him, where was Peter? He was out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. He had been fishing all night long and he had caught nothing. And he saw a man on the shore in the morning who he didn't recognize And the man on the shore looked at him and said, put your nets on the other side. And he did, and he caught such a large catch that it nearly broke the nets. And then he came to the shore and he met Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth said, leave your fish and follow me. And I'll make you a fisherman. Do you guys see what Jesus is doing? You guys, this is brilliant. Jesus is recreating the moment of Peter's calling. He's recreating the scene. He's saying, Peter, I know you thought you missed it. I'm calling you again. 
I'm bringing you back. I'm calling you back to that moment. And, he, and, and John looks at him, he says, Peter, this is for you. It's the Lord. And you know what Peter does? You guys, Peter's response is the best. Look what Peter does. The Bible says, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around himself for he took it off and he jumped into the water. He jumped. His response, he's like, Lieutenant Dan. You know, and he just like <laughs> hurls himself into the Sea of Galilee. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you something I love, you guys. When it says that he jumped, the, the word in the Greek is actually hurled. He threw himself. So if you got this picture in your mind that it was like this beautiful swan dive, like it wasn't. It was messy. It was sloppy. He hurled him. It probably was splashed off. It obviously wasn't premeditated because the Bible says he puts his clothes on before he jumps. And who does that? And he jumps in the water. And I love Peter's response. And I'll tell you what else I love. I love the little details of the Bible. You guys, you got to love the Bible. I love the little details that the gospel writers include because look what John, John just adds this little statement in verse eight. The rest of us followed in the boat towing a net for they were only, you know, we were, we're not far from the shore, only about a hundred yards. He's like, uh, the rest of us just, you know, rode three times. And <laughs> I imagine they like passed Peter. You know? <laughs> All right, buddy. But I'll be honest to you guys, I love Peter's response. And you know why I love it so much? I think what's happening here is Peter, Peter in that moment recognizes it's Jesus. And yes, he is full of regret. But his response is that he throws himself in the direction of Jesus. He turns and he throws himself in the direction of Christ. You know, I love that because I'll be honest with you guys. I don't know if you're this way, but when I feel like I have failed, when I feel like I really blew it, when I feel like I have regret, like I have let God down or I've let you down or I've let someone down, you know what my natural impulse is? My natural impulse is not to throw myself to God. My natural impulse is to retract. It's to push back. It's to retreat. My natural impulse is to think, man, I blew it so bad. I blew it so bad. I need to get off in a corner and I need to try to get my act together and I can't go back to God and I can't go back to life group and I can't go back to his people until I get my life back in order. I deserve the pain that I'm feeling. And then maybe after a little bit of time, I'll clean myself up and then I'll, I'll, I'll go back in the direction of Jesus. But Peter, I love what he does. He throws himself, hurls himself in the direction of Christ. And you guys, I think that what we see with Peter is a physical demonstration of what all of us are invited to do in our moments of regret. I think the Bible calls it repentance, repentance. That in our regret, our regret leads us to repentance. Now, this might be a good time for me to give you a definition of repentance. I wanna tell you, there is a difference in the Bible between regret and repentance. I think um, 2 Corinthians 7 actually is illuminating. It says this, it says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now you read that, you might be thinking, what is that talking about? Well, do you see what Paul's saying? Paul's gonna say, there's actually two kinds of sorrow. He's gonna say there's godly sorrow. There's godly sorrow and it's godly sorrow leads you to repentance. And he says, and there's worldly sorrow and worldly sorrow just leaves you in a place of regret leaves you in a place of regret. Now, what's fascinating is if you look at the original words that are used, most often translated for regret and repentance, you're gonna see they're similar in the Greek language, but they're different. So regret literally means sorrowful remorse. It means to have a change of heart. So we all know what that's like. 
it's, man, I feel so terrible. I wish I would have never done that. I, I had a change of heart. I wish I, wish I could stricken that from the record. I feel, I feel so badly. I feel so remorseful about what I've done or what I've said. Uh, repentance, on the other hand, is a little different. Repentance is to turn around. It's to change direction. So here's literally what repentance is. Repentance is I'm going this way. Now I'm turning around and I'm going this way. That's what repentance is. So if I could just make it as clear as I can, regret is a change of heart. Repentance is a change of direction. Regret is I am heartbroken about what I did. Repentance is I'm gonna change as a result of it. Um, Regret produces only sorrow. Repentance produces change. That's the big difference between, see, and I think what this is showing us, you guys, is that regret in and of itself is actually not bad. Regret is not a bad thing. It's a good thing to grieve. Peter grieved his regretful decisions. It's okay to do that. But here's the problem. When we live here, when we stay here, regret can be very dangerous because regret can keep us locked in a never-ending loop of guilt and shame, of embarrassment, which leads to further poor decisions which can collapse in themselves and it repeats and it repeats and it repeats. But repentance, a regret becomes a gift when it leads us to repentance. Godly sorrow that leads us to fling ourselves to Jesus and to come to him. I love the way Andrew Murray said it in his book, Deeper Christian Life. He said, remember, it's quite possible if you use your failure rightly to be far nearer to Christ after it than you were before. Use it rightly, I say. That is, come and acknowledge in me there is nothing, but I'm gonna trust my Lord unboundedly. Let every failure teach you to cling afresh to Christ and he will prove himself a mighty and loving helper. You know, because one of the things I think is really interesting is when you look at the life of the disciples, all the disciples let Jesus down at one point or another. But there are two disciples specifically of the 12 who we have some major blunders recorded on their behalf. One of them is Peter, who denied Jesus three times. The other one is Judas, who many of you know sold Jesus out and uh, kind of betrayed him in those ways. And I'll tell you what's interesting is in Matthew 27, verse three, the Bible tells us that Judas regretted it. That's what it says. He, he experienced deep sorrow. He had a heart change. He wished he could have taken it back. And yet the Bible's gonna tell us that his regret never led him to repentance. He never turned back to Jesus. And as a result of that, he lived in a place of regret that ultimately plagued him to the place where he took his own life. Peter had regret, but his regret led him to a place of repentance and repentance led him to a place of reconciliation. It makes you wonder, could Judas's story have been different? What if he just turned to Jesus? Is it possible that he could have experienced the reconciliation that God desired for him? So Peter, Peter turns his regret into repentance that leads to his restoration. So the question you might be asking is, okay, well, practically speaking, how do I take my regret and turn it into repentance? How do I, how do I make that move? And, and can I just give you a couple practical things? I think here's the first step. I think the first step is that you confess to God. I think that you confess, confession. This is what John says, the same guy who wrote the gospel of John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, if we say that we haven't sinned, if we don't think that we've messed up, then we're all deceived because we've all messed up. But then he says this, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and he'll forgive us of all sins and he'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, what's John saying there? Here's what he's saying. Let let me help you kind of understand what confession is and what confession is not. So the word for confess is literally this word. It's the word homologeo. 
homologeo. And it literally means to say the same thing. It means, this is what confession is. Confession is agreeing with God. So confession is not me just reciting a list of my failures to God. God already knows. He already, it's, not like, it's not like he's surprised by those things. Confession is saying, God, I blew it. And, and, and you were right. And I'm not trying to sugarcoat it and I'm not trying to rationalize it and I'm not trying to belittle it and I'm not trying to justify it. I'm just saying I blew it. And, and what you said is right and what I did is wrong. And I'm coming into a place of agreement and I'm asking you to forgive me and help me to change. That's what it means to confess. And so we're to confess. We're to confess to God. That's, a, I believe, the first step of turning our regret into repentance is we don't run from God from the pain of our regret. We run to him and we confess to him. I think, I think it also means this. I think sometimes what it means is that we also confess to others. I think there's times where, where our next step is to confess to others. If you've wronged somebody, I think that it looks like going back and confessing to them. I think if there's, re- if there's restitution that needs to pl- take place, I think it's confessing. You, you, know, you know what I think a good indication that maybe it's time to confess to another, not to everybody, but confess to another person, maybe a life group leader or a trusted brother or sister in Christ. You know what I think a good indication is? If there is a secret that is buried so deeply inside of your heart that the thought of exposing it and saying it out loud brings you a tremendous amount of embarrassment and guilt, I, I think that might be a good sign that maybe there's something that you should confess to another person. Because listen, our regrets can have an incredible amount of power over us. I love what James says. This is what James says. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Now look at this, so that you'll be healed. So that you'll be healed. And can I just tell you, I just wanna bear witness as someone who has personally experienced this in my own life. There have been times in my life that I have hidden secrets in the darkness of my own heart that I've been too embarrassed to admit out loud. And there have been times that those secrets have had a certain amount of power over me. And when I actually found the courage to confess it out loud to another trusted Christian, and I've had that person pray for me, can I tell you what I've discovered? There's healing. God has healing for you in that. That the process of healing begins a lot of times with confession. And I think that that's part of how we move from regret to repentance, which ultimately leads us on the path of restoration. And that's what happens with Peter. And I love, by the way, I love how Jesus restores Peter. I, I want to show it to you because this is, this is so cool. So watch what happens next in, our, in, the, in the gospel here. Oh, oh, by the way, I, did, I meant to say this too. I love what uh, Peter Scazzaro wrote this great book, a book I would recommend. Um, he wrote this in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spiritual. He said, our fear of bringing secrets and sin into the light drives many people to prefer the illusion that if they don't, look, if they don't think about it, it somehow goes away. Look what he says, it doesn't, it doesn't. Unhealed wounds open us up to habitual sin against God and others. I think this again just exposes the power and the need for the healing that comes in confession. And so Jesus goes on to restore Peter and here's how he does it. The Bible says when they landed, when the disciples landed on the shore, they saw a fire uh, uh, burning coals with, there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat. He's probably like, I probably shouldn't have jumped out. And he dragged the net ashore and it was full of uh, large fish, but even with so many of the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, this is so great. Come and have breakfast, guys. He has a fire set up. He's coming to have breakfast with me. Uh, None of the disciples asked him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And then Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. 
And he did the same with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love this picture. Jesus says, come and have breakfast with me. Come and have breakfast. But I want to show you a little detail that I think is so important. In the English Standard Version, if you look at verse 9 and 10, it's going to say this. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire that was in place. Now, I want to tell you why that's so significant. There's fires all throughout the Bible. Like, the Bible's full of fires. Did you know there's only twice, only two times in the entire New Testament, it specifies that it's a charcoal fire, only twice. The first is in John 18, when Peter denies Jesus. And the second is in John 21, when Peter restores Jesus. You guys, what is Jesus doing? You guys, again, I think this is absolutely brilliant. Jesus recreates Peter's moment of his calling. And now he is recreating the moment of Peter's failure. He's recreating that same moment. He brings Peter into a charcoal fire. And I know he's doing this because look what, Peter, look what Jesus does next. Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then Jesus again for the second time asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Now watch this, the third time, the third time he looked at him, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. He was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times, Peter denies Jesus. Three times, Jesus questions Peter. What is Jesus doing here? What is he doing? Is, is, is Jesus just being mean? Is he, just, is he just rubbing Peter's failure in his face? I think for some of us, when we read that, that's what we think. We think Jesus is like, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, I love you. He's like, well, sure, it didn't seem like it a couple days ago, so let's run it again, right? Like, it seems like, let me ask you guys this question. In your failure, in your regret, how does God treat you? How, do, how is Jesus' posture towards you? Is he harsh? Is he angry? Is he like, you idiot? Is that how he responds to you? Now, for some of us, we have a never-ending loop of self-condemning thoughts that go through our mind that we attribute as the voice of God. And can I just tell you, I do not think that's what's going on here, not for a moment. And I'm not just saying that because I want that to be true. I'm saying that because I think the text is showing us this. You guys, how does Jesus treat the man who just denied him and the disciples who abandoned him? He calls them friends and he cooks them breakfast. Come have some breakfast, friends. And then he brings Peter in. He brings Peter in. And and I just want to tell you, if he wanted to rub into Peter's face his failure, you know what he would have done? He would have looked back. He would have looked back, but he doesn't look back. Three times he asked Peter, and do you notice what he does? He points forward. He points forward. He says, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Leave the fish. We got some sheep to think about. Peter, do you love me? Don't look back. Look forward. Three times he does this. Can I tell you guys what I think Jesus was doing in this moment? I'm convinced that what Jesus is doing is he is saving Peter's life. He is saving Peter's life because Jesus knows that if Peter doesn't deal with the pain that came from Peter's regret, that every time that Peter would have heard a rooster crow or would have smelled a charcoal fire, it would have been a painful reminder of the guilt and the shame that he felt. Just like for many of us in this room, 
There's certain songs that we hear. There's certain tastes that we taste and smells that bring us right back to that place, right back to that moment of our deepest regret. And I think Jesus knows if I don't deal with this, if I don't meet you here, and if I don't redeem this space, then your failure is going to, it's going to determine your reality and it's gonna dictate your future for the rest of your life. See, I don't believe that Jesus brings this up to hurt Peter. I think he brings this up because he wants to heal Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me? I love you. I know you do. I know you do. And so let's deal with the wound and let's move on. Peter, do you love me? I know you love me. So feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? I know that you love me. So let's get back to your calling and let's get back to work. Yes, Peter, what you did was heinous. And yes, Peter, we all saw it. But my grace is sufficient for you. So let's deal with the wound and let's get back and let's go forward. And by God's grace, some of you need to hear that today. You need to hear what Jesus is capable of doing with your regret and with your failure. His grace is sufficient. Here's what I believe it means to live a life where Jesus is over my regret. I think it means that rather than allowing my regret to define me, I'm gonna allow my regret to lead me to repentance, to turn to Jesus who ultimately can restore me. I think that's what it is. And can can I tell you, that one of the most amazing things that God can do with our regret, one of the most amazing things, is that he doesn't just forgive it. But if you begin the journey, if you begin the journey of letting him into those places and redeeming those places, he actually can go a step further and he can redeem that. I believe that what God can do with our regret is he can take our regret, our greatest point of regret, and he can turn it into one of the greatest testimonies of his grace. I gotta tell you something that I think is so cool. I told you that Peter's failure is recorded in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all talk about it. But by far the most unflattering version, like the one that is just like, it's just so unflattering towards Peter is Mark. Mark has gotta be the most unflattering of them all. And I'll tell you why I find that interesting because Mark was written by Mark, but it was dictated by Peter. Peter was the one who was responsible for for, for being the one who kind of authored the book of Mark. Mark was the one who wrote on his behalf. Isn't it interesting that Peter was the first one to say, to broadcast to the world, this is what I did. This is what happened. And this is how Jesus met me. And this is how he has restored me. Can I just tell you that one of the ways that, that God can heal us is he can take our greatest moments of regret. He can meet us in them and he can forgive us, but then he can redeem it and make it part of our story. And part of our, he did this with David. He did this with Moses. He did this with Nebuchadnezzar. He did this with Peter. He did this with Paul. All of them would say, look what I did. And look at what God did. I'm a trophy of his grace. And I can't wait to tell you about the grace that God has bestowed in my life. I'm gonna ask the band to come up, you guys. And as they do, I wanna end with just this last final thought. And I, I know there, there's, there might be some of you who are here today and you're hearing this and you might be saying, man, this is, this, is, this is encouraging. And I hear you saying that my regret can turn to repentance and God can restore me. And I hear you say all that. And that sounds all heartwarming and everything. That sounds all nice. Jesus loves me. Jesus forgives me. But look, you don't know what I did. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. And so how can you just say God forgives you? How can you just say that? It's easier said. And you don't know what I did. So how do you know? How do you know 
that God can truly take my regret and he can restore me? Well, can I tell you how I can say that with 100% certainty? The reason is because, listen, Jesus, Jesus didn't, he didn't restore Peter because he just dismissed his sin. He didn't restore Peter by just belittling his sin. Jesus was able to restore Peter because he paid for his sin. You guys remember how this started? After these things, after what things? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, Peter, I know what you did, and I paid for it. And Peter, I know the guilt that you have, and I buried it. And I have risen from the dead, and so now you follow me. And he can offer that to you and to me as well. I think this whole story, if I could summarize it in just one simple statement, I'd say it's this. Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. He's a far better savior. Now, that's not a challenge. I'm not saying like, not like some of you are like, challenge accepted. I'm gonna find out. Don't try to outsin your savior. But I am saying he is a far better savior and you can't outsin his ability to save. That's what the resurrection is all about. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we just wanna say thank you that you are a far better savior than we are sinners. Thank you that you know the human heart so well because you made it that you don't just dismiss our sin or belittle it, but you wanna take us right into the moments of our regret, not to hurt us, but to heal us. Uh, not, not so that we stay there, but so that we move on. And so Father, I pray that even right now in a room like this, that you would flood our hearts with the grace that is found from the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us to claim grace, to claim it in our own lives. Help us to take our regret and move on to repentance. Help us to fling ourselves in your direction. No matter how ugly it looks, no matter who's around, help us like Peter just to fling ourselves to you, Jesus. And we do that in prayer, and we do that in worship, and we do that now. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.